Explore today's must-have trends and innovative styles at Mrs. B's Clearance and Outlet. Shop one-of-a-kind finds in today's must-have trends. Explore wall-to-wall deals, furniture, flooring, mattresses, home accents, seasonal favorites, and more. Discover unique new home decor, pillows, accessories, and more. There's something perfect for your style and budget. There's new inventory every day at up to 80% off suggested retail. Discover the style and savings of Mrs. B's Clearance and Outlet. Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and on my screen I can see my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. <laughs> we are in London on a very rainy afternoon, but our special guest this week is in New York. Welcome, Lorraine Alterman. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Lorraine, it's a joy to see you on Zoom today. We're going to talk about your long career as a writer, editor, and theatre producer. We'll also be discussing Stevie Wonder, Spencer Davis, and a 1995 audio interview with Elvis Costello. But why don't we start in Detroit? Were you born, Lorraine, am I right in assuming you were born in the Motor City? No, no, no. Oh! (laughs) I'm from New Jersey, just like Bruce Springsteen. Okay, a Jersey girl. A Jersey girl, exactly. No, I actually moved there because I was briefly married to a lawyer who got a job with a federal judge in Detroit. And I had been working for a year after college at Scholastic Magazine, which I don't think you have them there, but they're magazines that go into schools. There's a junior scholastic, senior scholastic, etc. So the Detroit Free Press just happened to be looking for a teen page editor because there was no internet in those days. Really? You can imagine in 1965. So they wanted to reach a teenage audience to get them to actually read the newspaper. So every Friday we did a teen beat page. So, cause I had the scholastic experience. I got hired. So anyway, it was supposed to be about, you know, local doings at schools, the YMCA, that kind of thing. And then I realized thanks to some record promoters that the way to reach kids was to have some features about rock music. This is 1965. And it just so happened that it was the height of Motown in Detroit. So it was like a very exciting scene there. And then there was the underground rock scene. There was the MC5, and there were a lot of local groups, some of whom, like Mitch Ryder and and the Detroit Wheels, who made it nationally. But I actually was not a rock fan. I was always a jazz fan when I was a teenager. (laughs) I was different than the other children. (laughs) <laughs> so so my actual first celebrity interview when I was in college I won a contest with 17 magazine was with Dave Brubeck who was really? one of my idols and that was my first experience interviewing a celebrity so that that wow. really set me off well, I mean, you say you, you weren't a kind of rock fan, but you're very convincing writing about rock and roll in 65, 66, 67 You know, I think a problem with a lot of the writers at that time, they were big fans and they weren't, I think to be a journalist, you have to be a little removed and Mm -hmm. disinterested. I mean, I got to like a lot of the music and musicians and all that 
more like I I always loved R and B and soul music, closer to jazz, I guess, and yeah. folk music because of the poetry and the writing and all. Hard rock, okay, but um, so I think you have to maintain a perspective when you're writing about this, and not not be a fangirl. Sure. So we're featuring three of your pieces from the Detroit Free Press, or two from the Detroit Free Press on the homepage this week. And what I love is that one of them is with the MC5 and one of them is with Smokey Robinson yeah. in the space of about three or four months. And that's, that's Detroit in a nutshell, isn't it, really? Exactly, exactly. I mean, Motown, I went to Hitsville, USA a lot, knew a lot of the artists, and I guess it's come full circle because now I'm a co-producer of The Temptations musical on Broadway, if Broadway ever starts up again <laughs> in this pandemic. Well, I thought it was lovely that it's, that does bring the story full circle. Ain't too proud. We will come to that. But yeah. you... You know, there can't be many people who actually saw these amazing artists sort of up close and you you went to the Hitsville studios and you interviewed pretty much, I guess, all of the the, the Motown roster. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember also there was a nightclub called The 20 Grand in Detroit and a lot of those yeah. artists yeah. played there. So I would go there to see them and hang out. Until the riots of '67 happened, and then it, it of course sort you of, were there then. Of course you were. Yeah, and this. I year. was. Yeah. I was yeah. there. I actually wasn't there when the riots started. I happened to be visiting my mother in New Jersey, which I guess was lucky because I lived downtown. And when I came back a few days later, there were tanks in the street, and it was very scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the MC5 very much sort of caught the mood of of those times, didn't they? I mean, there's this, there's this great interview. February 67, so long before, really at least like a year before Kick Out the Jams, you're talking to them about psychedelia, and they're, they're kind of funny. Yeah, they are. Wayne Kramer says, many young kids who can't play the guitar very well just turn up the volume and think they're playing psychedelic. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I, I've, I've found what must be the first ever mention of them in print. You were reporting on a student or a school party and one of the bands listed as playing at this party, and this is the year before, the MC5. So they're playing school dances at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I probably ran across them at one of these small clubs that was around the Grandy Ballroom or what, yeah. whatever the, the clubs were, the Chessmate, and different small clubs in the suburbs. But, yeah, I mean, it was it was also while I was in Detroit that I saw Jimi Hendrix for the first time. Yes, I think yes. It was we have that piece tour. on RBP. We do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was thrilling. That was like, oh, my God, what is this? This is really amazing, fantastic, something else. Yeah. It's a fantastic piece. The other thing is that it gave me a clue of where to look for your stuff, and it turns out there's a website, newspapers.com, that have – vast quantities of the Detroit Free Press. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. And, and so I've been able to mine it for just loads of your stuff. Oh, good. Yeah, no, it's, it's, been, it's been absolutely brilliant. So there's been no shortage of that. Yeah. But it was, the Hendrix piece was terrific. Yeah. Mm, and the interview yeah. with Smokey's really, really nice as well. You know, there weren't many songwriters talking in detail about their craft in 1967, yeah. but he makes this interesting point. He just says that, you know, to me, a good song has to be a song that will mean something 100 years from today. It, it's got to be more than a song that just says, I love you, baby. Do you love me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And let's face it, Smoke, Smokey, 
Smokey went way beyond, I love you, baby, do you love me? <laughs> but they're so simple. That's what's so great about them. They're not complicated. They just get right to the heart and soul of, of what he's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, he wrote a lot for The Temptations, you know. Well, of course, absolutely. And, again, well, I look forward to hearing about the sort of genesis of The Temptations musical. I was fascinated to find a couple of articles, Lorraine, that you did, which where you basically talked to, to Nancy Lewis, who's one of our writers. She died, what was it, last uh, year? Last, yeah, February. I, I the, mean, she was still, she, you know, any time I'd go to London and she was there, I'd see her or we'd see each other here. Yeah. And she, yes, I mean, it, it was it was shocking how, how fast she went. I saw her in London the summer before she died and right you know she took me out to tea once which is she's absolutely charming talked about Jimi hendrix as being a doll but it's, so i was really pleased to find these two articles where, where you're you're talking to her about swinging london basically for the benefit of youthful detroit readership this yeah exactly <laughs> and here was this local girl made good in in london and you know she was with the who when they first came through detroit and i think it's when when Keith or somebody drove a car into a swimming pool, I seem to recall. Um, <laughs> those anyway, were the I days. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I, I was very, very pleased to find those two articles. It's great stuff. Shall we just talk briefly about you moved back east? You moved I, um, yeah. back to New York, didn't you? Now, what, what prompted that, Lorraine? Well, since I, I Detroit was nothing's New York, you know, nothing's New York or London. So I wasn't going to stay there forever after my marriage, my short marriage broke up and there were the riots. Then, then we had a big newspaper strike and I walked the picket line for a while and did that. I, there was actually a longer one, I think in the seventies, but this one was pretty long. And Robin Leach, who was, publishing go magazine he had been begging me come to new york i i had been stringing for billboard at that point and he i met him at a promotional party in cleveland i think for some i think buddha records or something and he kept i i started being their detroit correspondent and then all that happened and he said come back and you could be the executive editor and editor of of go which was a weekly that went out free was distributed free by radio stations they paid for it the radio stations got their logo on it and things about their djs and then there were stories so so i went back there to work for go and for a couple years and then that folded and then i went to beyond winter bought a magazine called new york scenes trying to compete with another New York magazine here. That didn't work. He folded it, but then I became their New York bureau chief, which was me and a secretary when they were still in San Francisco. So well, You mentioned New York scenes, which is interesting. I didn't know that that was a Wenner publication, but there's a great Briefly, piece that yeah. we're running. Yeah. So this is a piece that Mark must have found a little while ago, which is just a brilliant piece comparing the Apollo Theater up in Harlem oh, yeah. with the Fillmore East. And, it's just a brilliant kind of compare and contrast, these two venues. Did you know about the Apollo before you, you – I mean, you, had you been to the Apollo before you moved to Detroit? No, because I wasn't into that music, you know. But I used to go up to the Apollo when I was with Go in, in the late 60s, and 
you know, most white people didn't go up there. So it was photographer and I used to go up and it, the shows were so much fun. It was great, you know. Yeah. And the audience was just so vocal and ha was having a great time. And you could feel that they they felt it. They felt the music more than sometimes at the Fillmore. Maybe it's because so many people were stoned. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're quite savage towards the Fillmore in this piece. I mean, it, you know, I'm oversimplifying, but what you're kind of saying is the Apollo is the genuine article. Yeah. And the, and the Fillmore is sort of imitative. I and mean, you talk about, you, you're pretty disparaging about Janis Joplin and John. Johnny Winter. I know. I, yeah. know. <laughs> I reread that and I thought, well, I think I would have to revise the Janis Joplin part at least. <laughs> and the final piece that we've got by you is is this interview with John Lennon. And so, I mean, take a deep breath, listeners, but the, the, John Lennon was the best man at your wedding, Lorraine, which is, a, is quite a claim to fame. First off, I mean, when, when, when and how did you meet your late husband, the great actor Peter Boyle, and how did he, you guys, get to know John and Yoko? Well, even before I met Peter, Yoko and I were friends. I actually, I had interviewed the Beatles when I was in Detroit, when they came through, when John had said, you know, we're more popular than Jesus, yes. that era. And then I had covered some of the things like the Apple, when they announced Apple Records, press conference and all that, but I didn't really know them. But I met Yoko, I was on a panel that Naris, the Recording Academy had about women in music. And I was on it and Yoko was on it. And I had just written a review in the New York Times comparing Yoko, Dory Previn and Joni Mitchell saying, Basically, Yoko was no great shakes as a vocalist or writer. <laughs> so she said to me, she said, why did you say that? I said, well, you know, it's a matter of personal taste and I like melody more than, I didn't say more than screaming, but, but anyway. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm just going downtown to see Dory Previn perform at the bitter end. Do you want to come? Not thinking she would want to come. Well, she did. So so we went down in her limo, which was better than me taking the subway. And, you know, I, I don't know if she liked Dory, but she invited Dory and I to come to her apartment the next day to have tea. So we went and they really they really didn't get along. I mean, a lot of artists are jealous. of you know, It's not jealous. They're just very competitive. But for some reason, Yoko and I struck up a friendship. John, she had, this is when she sent John off to California with May Pang. And so we used to go to dinner. We used to talk. Or, I mean, she was, she could be fun to be, not fun, but in, she's very interesting. Her life was interesting and all. So I was very friendly with her. And then Rolling Stone sent me to L.A. to interview Mel Brooks when they were making Young Frankenstein. So she said, oh, well, when you, you're out there, will you go see John and May? They're staying in a rented house in Santa Monica. So I met Peter on the set, and we started hanging out and eventually led to marriage. Um, yeah. But I went to Santa Monica. They rented this big house on the beach, and John was there. Keith Moon was hanging out there. Harry Nielsen, who was always with them, 
and I, I went there, I just remember the funniest story Keith Moon told about how, I guess John Sebastian was around and he told Keith, come over, see what I'm working on. And Keith fell asleep there. And when he woke up, all his clothes had been tie dyed by John Sebastian and his wife. (laughs) 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 I just love that. I'm sure Keith passed out. It wasn't, he wasn't just asleep and they removed his clothes and did that. So, so that I always remember (laughs) that from that period. And it was after John had been, John and Harry had been kicked out of the troubadour, you know, when they were carrying on. So it was that period. And then when John came back to New York, we still, I kept in touch with him in May and Peter and I had rented a beach house in Amagansett, which is on the East end of Long Island. And and John and May came and stayed with us a few times. And then, as you know, eventually he went back to Yoko, which was no surprise really. But so I introduced Peter to John actually, and they hit it off because I think John says it in that article that it's easier to be friends with somebody who is your equal as you know, celebrity or whatever, who doesn't want anything from you. Plus, John was so used to people expecting him to pay the tab in restaurants and all, and Peter always split it with him or picked it up. So it was, that he. I think he felt more equal with Peter. Yes. You know. Well, all that makes sense, doesn't it? And he says some interesting things in this interview. Yeah. I mean, it's always slightly bizarre when one hears about John and Yoko breaking up but Yoko somehow countenancing this relationship with May Pang. I mean, when you said Yoko told you to look them up when you were in L.A., that, that, that sounds sort of bizarre, really. But she kind of smiled on this relationship in some strange way. Yeah, she controlled it. <laughs> you know, that's the whole, that was the yeah. whole thing. You know, you know I'm, trying, I'm trying to write a memoir of a lot of this stuff, And, you know, part of me hesitates to, I know too much about certain people and, you know, (laughs) and I've never really talked about it, but I guess the time is now, you know, it it was, it was an interesting period. Incredible. I'm going to take you actually back to Detroit now. American tour. But we just thought it'd be good, a good thing to talk about Stevie Wonder, who I know you, you interviewed and, and met probably several times when you were in Detroit. And Stevie is kind of back with us. He's just released two, two tracks, which are quite sort of, you know, as, as they say, politically charged. And good. so we thought it was time to, to pay some attention to Stevie's been quiet for a long time. So we've got three pieces, and they're really focusing on the real change in direction when he just took control of his life. And I was interested Mm -hmm. to know whether you saw a real kind of change in Stevie from the little kid that you knew in, say, 60, what, seven? He's still a little kid, perhaps, or 65. You know, and did you, did you, up close or even at some distance, see this, this dramatic change in, in the Stevie of kind of, you know, from fingertips to to music of my mind. 
You know, when I first saw him in the studio when he was little Stevie Wonder, it was I was being given a tour of the Motown studios by the publicist. And Stevie happened to be in there recording something. And I was looking to see if I wrote about it. And I guess I didn't. It was just like, okay, here's a tour. Here's this little guy playing piano like genius. I never was that close to him that I really knew him, to tell you the truth. I did come across another comparison article, Stevie Wonder and John Denver in the New York Times, two record reviews. And I also came across the nasty letters that people sent. How could you compare those two? They're totally different. You're so mean about John <laughs> Denver, blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know why I like <laughs> I guess I like controversy. But, you know, so I really, I mean, I've seen Stevie perform. I'd say in a way, like Marvin Gaye is somebody I knew better. Marvin, did I ever give it to you, Barney? I have a recording he did. There was a teen fair in Detroit, and we asked Marvin, would you record a song, a teen beat song? So he made up a teen beat song for my column, and on the other side, I'm interviewing him. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, I, and, I did know about that. Did I give it to you? No, I, I don't think have so. Some, no. I can send you. I have the MP3. I can, I can figure out how to That'd send that. That would be great. That next be time I see you, Barney, I'll give you one. All right. That'd be, that'd be... <laughs> I, I still have a few left. Hi, this is Lorraine Alterman, Free Press Teen Editor, and today I'm talking to Marvin Gaye. Marvin, how are you? Well, I'm pretty fine today. What do, what do you think about teenagers and their clothes and their fads, um, say mod clothes and, and wild things like this, long hair? I think I think if they want to wear mod and everything, I think that's groovy. Really, I, in fact, I, I, mod clothes. I think it's something. It 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 keeps it, when you, when you wear mod clothes or, or when you go from one extreme to another. I think, and insofar as clothes are concerned, I think it keeps you. Um, it keeps a person happy because you who wants to wear. Levi's all the time or something, you know. You're coming on Teen Beat In the free press Teen Beat Hey, hey, hey Oh, the Teen Beat Is mad at me In the free press So, but then Marvin obviously went through great, you know, political upheaval, and I think for me, and then Peter knew him too, because one time Peter was renting a house in Malibu, and a bunch of people were in the ocean, and it, Marvin was like in front of the house, and Peter went out to yell at them, "You're on this property of this house," and then he realized it was Marvin, so they they became pals at the, at that point. <laughs> wow, that's extraordinary. And the last time I saw him, I guess was at Radio City with Peter. I have a picture of us all together, but that was a such a tragedy that he's gone. I mean, his stuff oh, God, yeah. just stands up. Absolutely. We thought we'd just listen to a clip of, we got a couple of clips of Stevie speaking. And, oh, great. Uh, sort of really, we're talking about, you know, when, when he started using Moog synthesizers. Why don't we just listen to that? I'd love to. To a certain degree, there was a collaboration, you know, the whole thing was myself and Sarita. And, you know, we wrote the stuff and it was sort of like a, 
the beginnings of saying that, yeah, that sort of, that would lead to music in my mind and then talking book and individuals. So where I'm coming from with that. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Yeah. You know, the technology was still happening. I had seen the MOOC synthesizer, but I really didn't know how powerful it was until I went to New York in 71 and had the pleasure of meeting Bob Margulis and Malcolm Sesso and, you know, and I'd heard Switched on Bach by Carlos and, you know, I said, ugh. Well, so it's so funny that Stevie goes to New York like like you went back to New York, yeah. and that's <laughs> that's where he really finds himself in a way. I mean, so the first piece is a piece really about uh, he comes to London and and he's just about to release where I'm coming from, and Mark Plummer of Melody Maker, who you were you wrote for Melody Maker, you were the New York yes, correspondent yeah. for Melody yeah. Maker, weren't you, Lorraine? So Mark Plummer is in the hotel with Stevie, and he plays him an acetate of where I'm coming from. And he's really, he's really blown away. And when you hear, I mean, I listened to it again yesterday and just the first like two or three tracks, it's not like nothing Stevie did before was, wasn't brilliant. Of course it was brilliant, but this is, it is really astounding when you hear like look around the first track and you hear this incredible funky track called do yourself a favor. And this really, I think people always think the new Stevie started with music of my mind, but it really did start with where I'm coming from in 1971. It's, it's a pretty incredible record. I think I love hearing him talk about this Moog synthesizer. And because he does in one of the pieces that you've selected as well, he talks about that, about how it's an instrument more than, because at that time, I guess a lot of people were like, well, it's not a real, it's not real. It's somehow, <laughs> somehow because it's this synthesized sorcery that there's it's not a real instrument in some way. You know, he was such a great user of it and really discovered a sound through it which is which is fabulous yeah, I, I love the way the, 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 you know he starts working with margolith and cecil who released records under their own of tonto's expanding headband which I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and they were really really important guys I, I, earth wind and fire funny enough encountered them very early on and started yeah. sort of doing working with them. in fact they were working i think next door while Stevie was doing inner visions. Important couple of guys, you know, and, and uh, I, the, the, because the, the moogs were really difficult instruments to use in those days. They were yeah. so complicated and novel yeah. that you kind of needed someone to kind of guide you through the process of how to actually, you know, operate these machines. But yeah. it's, it's, great, it's great stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I think it also enabled him to kind of escape a little bit from the little Stevie thing where, you know, it was a, it was a, a movement away from, a conscious movement away from that, that he didn't want to be associated anymore with like, you know, little Stevie Wonder, the piano playing genius. Precisely. Did you, Lorraine, did you encounter Stevie at all post Detroit? Did you ever run into him in New York, for example? The only time I ran into him, I mean, this is just a silly story, was at the opening of the Motown show on Broadway. And I have a friend who's handicapped. So I walked with her to the handicapped bathroom and she's waiting and intermission waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally Stevie comes out of the bathroom (laughs) because we couldn't figure out what the heck is going on in there. So that's, that has 
to be the only time I really ran okay. here. <laughs> I think you might want to cut that out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, that's, that's exactly the sort of stories this podcast that's depends absolutely, on. Absolutely. <laughs> it does depend on, precisely. The last piece, so we have three pieces on Stevie, and the last one is by Carol Cooper, who's another New Yorker. It's a piece she wrote for The Face in 1984, about essentially about Stevie's, you know, fighting so hard to make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday, which finally happened, I think, in 1986. So it's a really interesting piece about Stevie's politics and, mm-hmm. well, you know, Black Lives Matter, really, uh, you know, and he's he's made a big point with these new tracks about these slogans and he takes issue with the all lives matter kind of, you know, counter mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. So he's kind of back in, in the way that, you know, the way Stevie does these things. But I thought maybe we could just hear the second of the clips because it is Stevie talking about stupidity and ignorance. You say you're sick and tired of us protesting. I say not enough to make a change. I've never accepted Stupidity and ignorance is making me then determine how good I was or how less I was by someone else's stupidity or ignorance. Partly what prompted me to pick this great Carol Cooper piece is, was reading an interview a couple of days with Cornell West. And he said this extraordinary thing, it really caught my eye, that he was in Charlottesville mm-hmm. in 2017 when that, you know, the, that, the, the march took place and, yeah. the, and the protest. Yeah. And he said he had this extraordinary thing is that he walked into the park and he saw these militia guys sitting around, the white supremacists, sitting around in the park, listening to Motown music. And I just thought, that's so bizarre. It just sort of, I I, I really don't know what to really make of that. It just sort of undermines their whole stupidity and ignorance. It was just a startling thing to read. But Barney, you know, I know you don't want to go into it yet. The Temptation Show has a scene where they're on a bus touring the South in the 60s and shots are fired into the bus and they're saying how you know they come to our concerts why are they shooting us now you know and and that's the whole dichotomy and craziness of it yeah that i mean the music was big there but when those groups and when jazz bands toured the south in those days audience you know blacks were upstairs and the whites were downstairs I mean, it's a terrible, terrible thing in this country. And it's still going, you know, it's unbelievable. If we bring the story full circle with the, the Temptations musical, let's just briefly look at how you got into becoming a theatre producer in the first place. So, I mean, you, you, I believe that, well, I seem to remember talking to you about the time when Memphis was, yeah. was, in, was yeah. in production. So that was 2010, the show Memphis. Right. And since then, you've been involved in at least two or three more productions oh, of the Carol yeah, more, King, more than Carol that. King musical. Yeah. How did Ain't Too Proud then come about? And, and what was your involvement from the, from the inception of that? Actually, you know, Memphis was the first show I got involved with was after Peter died. He died in 2006 from 
multiple myeloma. And I had met a woman and she said, oh, my husband and I are producing this show. I know you were a rock writer at one point. It's about rock and roll, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I've never invested in a show before. And I know that's really risky. Where can I see it? Well, it was playing in San Diego and La Jolla, actually, which is near San Diego. And I was going out to LA because every year after he died, I've done chaired a big comedy benefit for the International Myeloma Foundation. So I was there and I went down and I saw Memphis and it was like, wow, I know this story. This is basically Stax Vault and those people and disc jockeys in the South and, you know, blacks and whites together, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, okay, I'll make a little investment. She said, well, if you raise a little, this certain amount of money, you could be a co-producer. I said, okay. And then actually I got very involved in the show. Usually co-producers just raise money, but but David Bryant, who wrote the music for it, who's actually in Bon Jovi, said to me, you're one of us. You you get it. You know, so mm. so I became very close to all of them. And in fact, last night just had dinner with the writer of that, Joe DiPietro. Outdoors, of course, because that's the only way we can eat now. And then, you know, I've done other shows, plays, musicals, many flops. <laughs> I've lost money. Although I have to say, when I saw Hamilton... I'm very involved with the public theater and I saw it at a, at a workshop and I said, Oh my God, this is just like when I saw Jimi Hendrix in Flint, Michigan, all those years ago, this like is something so new and exciting. So I was able to get, get a small investment in that show. Fantastic. My girlfriend's daughter would be very pleased to hear that because she's obsessed with Hamilton. I, I know it almost <laughs> off by heart now because I just heard it sung to me day in, day out. There's some really great musicians on the first run of that as well. I mean, yeah. like David Diggs. Was fan- oh, yeah. Was fantastic. Dumb, yeah, yeah I, watched the, I watched the film of it. I was forced I to, basically. I was kind of sat down under a kind of threat. And, you know, <laughs> and, and it's, it's really good. It's you know, really, it, it, it really, so then the Carol King thing was fun to be involved with, but I, I mean, and most of them co-producers aren't involved from the beginning. With Ain't Too Proud, it was playing in, at Berkeley. And I went out to see it, and and Tom Hulse, who used to be an actor, he was in Amadeus, is sure. now one of the lead producers. And I said, Tom, I am the only person you know who ever was in the studio with Stevie Wonder when he was little Stevie Wonder. You have <laughs> to let me in this show. So I so I got involved, and it was such a pleasure. Some of the actors that were in Memphis are in it, and. You know, it was like old home week, the choreographer, the music director. It was a lot of people from Memphis. So it was really fun and it was doing really well. And actually, by now, there should have been plans for it to come to London. But, you know, the virus struck. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was a real hit, wasn't it? I mean, it's yeah. And I think when people go back to theater, they're going to want to see something that makes them feel good. And the writer, Mm -hmm. Dominic Morisot, is from Detroit and has written a lot of straight plays about Detroit and the experience there. So it's very authentic, the story of the group, I think. Ain't too 
last, I just wanted to give a name check to a shout out for you. You have an event for the for the Myeloma Foundation, I think, yes. don't you? On yeah. on Friday, which which I believe reunites members of the the hit sitcom. Everybody loves everybody Raymond. Loved, yeah. Everybody loves Raymond, which was and it was a massive, massive TV sitcom in in America. I don't know how successful it was here, but I know it was massive there. I mean, Peter was a, became a huge television star with that show. So you've you've brought you brought some of the cast together. So we that. brought some of the the stars, Ray Romano, Patty Heat, and Brad Garrett, together to do table reads from old scenes, and it's really still funny. People can see it. It'll be video. It'll be on demand on our website. It's myeloma.org, the International Myeloma Foundation. So after Friday, it'll oh, it'll good. be available to view. I I know it was big with a lot of people in England, people, you know, it's about family yes. and it's funny and we need to laugh. We, we need really to- do. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to that. And who is doing Peter's lines in that? Then? Nobody. No, no. Oh, they okay. said, do you You're want an actor to All play right. Peter? I said, over my dead body. No way. It, <laughs> okay. it wouldn't work. You know, so it's the th- they do scenes that he and, and Doris Roberts are not, not okay. in because she's, she's gone too. But it's for it's for a good cause to raise money to fight this deadly bone sure. marrow cancer. So. Yeah. Well, my father died of it, Lorraine, yeah, as I, I mentioned in months who died uh, six years ago this week. So it's something that I feel very personally too. Yeah. So I hope it's I hope it's really really goes well. I shall certainly check it out online. The moment has come in the podcast where we say goodbye to fallen heroes, and we've just lost Spencer Davis. So we're going to feature three pieces about Spencer Davis on the homepage. One by Keith Altham from 65, when Keep On Running has just, I think it's just entered the charts at number 20. So there's two pieces, one by Dawn James as well, and they're both kind of asking Spencer Davis and, of course, the great Stevie Winwood, who was the singer in the group, yeah. whether they're, they're, they're sort of going now in a pop direction are the spencer davis group going pop there's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a, a sort of minor scandal among kind of rhythm and blues uh, aficionados i, I mean the, 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 it's a very curious band because easily the most significant member wasn't the leader of the band was stevie winwood if you read the various interviews around that time you can see an increasing tension that, that Winwood wants to start branching out to other areas, and he feels very, very tied up. But I mean, Winwood was only 16 when Keep On Running was a hit. I mean, so young. Yeah. And astonishing. You look at those, those – you can see, find them on YouTube, videos of them, them performing. He's a 16-year-old kid who's sort of channeling Otis Redding, yeah. you know, just miraculous stuff, mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. I think he was discovered by Spencer when he was literally 14 in a in – a, club in North Birmingham and oh Spencer God. Davis happened to wander in and, and Stevie was playing with his brother Muff who of course was yeah. yeah. and there was that was the whole island connection wasn't it because Chris Blackwell signed the Spencer Davis group and then Muff Winwood became like the head of A&R there but I mean how Stevie sang like that when he was like 15 it's 16 inc- incredible yeah. I mean, did you ever encounter Steve, Steve Winwood or write about Steve Winwood when you were in New York, for example? Well, I, th- I think I encountered, I'd have to look it up because yeah. this just happened yesterday. I know, and I was going to look it up. I think I interviewed Spencer Davis. I don't know about Stevie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that I don't recall. Yeah. Well, apparently they adopted the name the Spencer Davis group purely because Davis was the only one that liked doing 
press. So <laughs> he, he was the only one that would actually do interviews. So, did, so did, that's why they were called did, the Spencer Davis Group. Didn't Spencer then go, like Muff Winwood, go into the, the music business proper? Because, as you say, Muff became an A&R man. And Spencer had some involvement, didn't he, in the, in the music business? That I don't I remember. I mean, I know he moved to California and he yeah. tried in, in vain to sort of keep his career going and reactivating the Spencer Davis Group in some... In some he was an executive at Island Records in the 70s. Well, Spencer was. Mm. Was he? Okay, I thought I thought it was just Muff. Anyway, yeah. I think he died in California. I mean, he's basically lived in California for many years. We've also lost, not that I'm afraid we have a great deal on Rock's Back Pages about him, but Jose Padilla, who is oh, yeah. the sort of godfather of Chill Out and such an important figure in the story of Ibiza, the Café Del Mar, etc., died, I think, yesterday. So we're saying goodbye to both those men. Um, we're now going to hear from Mark about this week's audio interview. Yeah, it's basically it's Elvis Costello being interviewed by Adam Sweeting in 1995, April 95. We'll listen at the end to a clip where he has just finished. He did three nights, I think, at the Brixton Academy as a, a double bill with Bob Dylan, in which they each participate in each of their sets. And that's very amusing. But basically what he's talking about is this album of covers he did called Kojak Variety, cover versions of other people's songs, mostly recorded with Jerry Sheff, Jim Keltner, James Burton, that sort of fairly legendary bunch of session musicians. And, you know, he, he talks about choosing songs, uh, how, you know, how he finds them, what the originals meant to him, and so on and so forth. He talks, I think, very interestingly about other people's cover versions. He, he's, and he's far from alone in this, he, for example, much prefers Cilla Black's version of Backrack and David's Anyone Who Had a Heart to Dionne Warwick's original, which he's not the only person to say that either. I'm, Bert Backrack's very, very keen on that version, I think. So uh, at one point, Sweeting asks him, you know, have you made too many records? So let's have a listen to this this clip. Well, I think it's been said in the past, sort of of your career generally, that you have, you have you have tended to want to put out too many records, which in a sense might have sort of impeded your yeah, progress. I, I, at least I, earlier on, put out nearly enough records. You know? <laughs> I'd have to put out a record every six months, like yeah, least. Yeah. And it wouldn't be such a big deal. And that's what mm-hmm. I'm trying to maintain on this record. I think that Warners again have been quite, um, you know, they've, they've, they've kind of, I think at the moment at least, it hasn't been released yet, so they might get more excitable when it comes out. But. <laughs> I just want people to discover the record for themselves. I'm not particularly bothered about getting a huge big drum and going, roll up, roll up, you know. Because I think it'd be much better if people just pick up the record if they, they want to hear some unusual songs. And I think the record says, you know, there isn't an awful lot to say in an interview about it because the stories behind how I yeah. encountered the songs I've told, I could reiterate them all and there might be some other angle that I didn't include in the notes. But honestly speaking, that's the story. Yeah, these are songs, and it's not even about the, the songs so much as my memory of the songs mm. as they were captured, you know. So remove us down from my heart, little girl. Let me live my life knowing you care. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to get at there. He's also around this time, he's curating the Meltdown Festival, which had really only just started. I think it was in something like the third year of Meltdown. I don't know, Lorraine, if you know anything about the Meltdown Festival, no. but it's basically an artist, whether it's, you know, of stature, 
gets to run about a week of events on the South Bank and the various concert halls mm-hmm. on the South Bank with artists that they've invited to participate. In his case, it's people like the Brodsky Quartet and a whole variety of other kind of fairly interesting people. It's a very good project. I haven't been to many of them, but because, but, you know, I'm too old for going out to Didn't, see shows didn't Yoko days. curate one one? She did, yeah. One year, oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, they usually pick... You know, a kind of interesting, arty sort of person mm-hmm. like Yoko. Yeah, Lou, Lou Reed did it, I think, once. Yeah, Nick Cave's done it. Bowie's Nick, done yeah. it. She... Bowie did it. Morrissey yeah. did it. Noel oh. Rogers did one. Yes, that's Nile true. Noel Rogers did one, yeah. I mean, they're sort of pretty cool. And, it's a good um, idea. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah, it's interesting, d- yeah. This year it got cancelled like everything else, but... I'm not sure if this is the right context to introduce the next clip, which is about Professor Elvis. Let's have a listen. Some of the people tend to treat you like a sort of rather professorial figure. Not yet, but I think it's coming. Academic-y, good person. I certainly hope not. Mm. Um, Yeah, I I don't know why. I mean, I I think you've just got to do the things. This opportunity has presented itself. I can't help it if I do know, you know, more about certain things, but I don't know, you know, I have no qualifications in in any of these things. I mean, I just know, I I go on intuition and feeling about them. Mm I'm not trying to make people think like me. All I can do is present the music. And people will come or they won't come and they'll enjoy it or they won't. You know, it's up to them. What I hate to see is things being prejudged, you know. Yeah. Uh, people sort of assuming that it's some ghastly crossover monster when they don't really know what it is. It's something new. Some of it's entirely new. Elvis is always in, engaging and interesting. He's a, he's a bright guy. He's, he's always got interesting things to say. Interestingly, he also talks about what would actually prove to be the very last album he did with the old attractions, All This Useless Beauty, which is, again, a bit like doing a cover version thing, but in reverse. He's doing songs of his that other people have covered. He, he decided he'd record them himself, and that was the last of that band as, as such. It's good stuff. He talks very fondly about working with Tony Bennett, his respect for that sort of type of singer and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, I mean, that quote that we just listened to, that clip, really speaks to, I suppose, one of the issues about Elvis Costello, which is what a lot of people would say, is that he's spread himself too thinly across too many different kind of areas. So that uh-huh. it's very difficult to kind of pin him down now and say, you know, this is what Elvis Costello is about. Whereas the first, what, like, five six albums even when he went into country music you sort of you know he was a singer songwriter that came out of kind of like probably a different kind of singer songwriter but he's done so many different and diverse things over the last what 25 years i think it must be difficult to manage his career but i understand that he you know i mean all he's saying is this stuff interests me so i'm going to explore why it. not i mean yeah you know what do you feel i believe that he is working on a score for a Broadway musical <laughs> for the future. So, Are you investing? Are you investing? I, That's I, the question. I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> see, first, I've got to see what it is. So, Elvis, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously well, he's take of, a commission. Yeah. He's one of our subscribers. He may well be listening. Yeah. Yeah. I, really like his album. I really like his album that he did about well, I don't know, six, seven years ago with The Roots. Oh, so that's the that's a really brilliant. great record. Actually. I would say that's the only decent thing he's done in about the last 20 years, quite honestly. 
Seriously. I think it's great. Um, I, I, really, I, you know, I really rate it, actually. I think that initial burst of albums he did when he's signed to Stiff Records and Demon, this year's model, etc., etc. He has a great sort of five years. He's producing some really fantastic music. And then, uh, personally, I, I, I just lost interest. I mean, maybe you know? he ran out of steam. You know, I mean, we yeah. put together a playlist of like almost 45 tracks, and there are, they're all just incredible songs. There's a run of just... Mm-hmm top-notch songwriting there i actually listened to kojak variety in preparing for this episode and you know i think it stands up pretty well i have to uh-huh. say it's kind of all elvis's interests from kind of you know soul to country music to yeah. like ray davis randy newman with this incredible band my god you know yeah. mark rebo playing alongside you know like james burton and jim <laughs> keltner i mean you know what's not to love yeah. But he is a sort of fanboy at the end of the day. He's he's sort of one of the great fanboys. And I like yeah. that. That he a lot of his career is about is about pointing people towards Bat Bacharach or the Brodsky Quartet or whatever, you know. There's a humility there, yeah. I think. I mean I, I I very much liked his country record, which not I don't know, not many other people seem to like it very much. And they filmed the making of it, and it's a very awkward thing. They're working with Billy Sherrill and Billy Sherrill's basically phoning in this production. You know, he couldn't be less interested. And, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I have a lot of, a lot of time from him. He's played one of the great live shows I ever saw in about, I think, 1980, 81 at the Brighton Dome, which was just astonishingly good, you know. But, you know, I've also just, yeah, I've drifted away from him, you know, as one does. But anyway. anyway. Yeah. I mean, you had stopped by the time Elvis Costello was becoming the quote-unquote king of America, which was one of his own. You, Lorraine, you you had stopped. It's, in fact, essentially, you'd stopped writing about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pop after music. I, after I got married and I had kids, and and I had really gotten bored in the late seventies with the whole rock scene. It was disco. It was just like, okay, I, you know, been there, done that. I really not going to continue about it about other people so I sort of stopped and I I stopped writing I got involved in community activities as one does as a mother and and then I guess you know coming back after Peter and plus being the wife of an actor is not easy I'll tell you that (laughs) they can be many people I I remember when Peter was playing Joe McCarthy it was very difficult (laughs) difficult to live with so I mean it was the whole thing Yes, yes. So anyway, so I just stopped, and then I guess the theater brought me back. Yeah, great. Well, I'm glad it did. I'm glad it did. You can never quite extinguish your passion for for music, especially sort of soul music. Well, you know, and also I listen to jazz. That's what I listen to. I still do, and I go to jazz clubs, Dizzy's Club in New York, and the Blue Note and stuff like that. That's really what I still love. Well, it, it, Jasper, you'll have to you'll, you'll have to go to New York at some point and hit the town with Lorraine. <laughs> yeah, when is that? <laughs> It'd be great. Pandemic um, is over. Yeah, one day. Over. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Mark, will you talk us through some of your highlights? Yeah. Uh, in the library this week. Absolutely. The first one is uncredited. It's Brian Jones at the Pop Thinking on Melody Maker, and where basically he's kind of asked about. It's single subjects in which he kind of comes up to a quote. So he's asked about Barbara Streisand, and he says, it's the Jewish show business tradition. I don't like that big showbiz scene. She's very talented, so I hear. All I know about her is that second-hand rose thing, and that was crap. 
She's supposed to be a very good entertainer, but then so is Sammy Davis Jr. I don't like him. <laughs> he goes and yeah. spots about national newspapers. Oh, I read them every day, but the national newspaper reporters I've met have been in rather unfortunate circumstances. I hate the lot, the bastards. <laughs> and then the very last question is LSD, and he says, money, I love it. Is the, the joke being pounds, shillings and pence yes. or not, you know. Anyway, so, so, so that's that. Lorraine, you knew Lillian Roxon, didn't you? Oh, yes. Because yeah. you, you wrote her obituary for Rolling Stone. Right. How, how good a friend was she of yours? She was a good, good friend. We all, at that era, hung together, the rock writers in New York. Yeah. Lillian, Lisa, and Richard Robinson. Oh, Mike John sends his regards. He's another one of the New York writers. That's right. So, That's right. Yeah, he's just, he's just told me to send his regards to you. So. Oh, good. <laughs> well, send him, send him back. I will. Yeah, and, you know, we were all hanging out at Max's Kansas City and Steve yeah. Paul's The Scene and all that. So we spent a lot of time together. And I remember... I mean, she was a great lady. She was really smart, really good writer. I, I mean, I don't know if you have her rock encyclopedia, which is probably the earliest kind of rock encyclopedia ever done. I was hugely pleased to get her on Board Rock's back pages via uh, her estate, via her niece, actually. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is her in the Sydney Morning Herald in June 68, explaining soul music to Australians, basically. And she says things like, if you stroll down on New York's shabby, poverty-stricken Avenue A on the Lower East Side, there are little cafes featuring soul food everywhere. As it happens, she was crazy about black music. You know, I mean, we've got so much for her writing about, you know, the Jackson 5 and things, you know. She's obviously crazy about it in this piece, but she is using verbal tropes which now make us all cringe. Melody Maker, 1970, Richard Williams, fabulous Richard Williams, talking to Robert Wyatt of the Soft Machine. Now, this is kind of curious because he had basically been slung out of the band and then they had a, they were booked to play the problems of all things at the Royal Albert Hall and hadn't got a drummer, so they drafted him back in again. So he's in the curious sort of no-man's land. He's kind of not of the band anymore, but, I mean, he founded the band. And he says, I'd say all the music grows up in a certain environment and ours is loads of people lying around getting stoned. Uh, I don't consider that we're a bridge-building band. We're very narrow, really, pursuing one train of thought. And he says, oh, dear, I'm unhappy about this interview. I'm saying all the things I mean. <laughs> yeah, big mistake. <laughs> yeah. Village Voice, 1974, the fabulous Vernon Gibbs, who I'm a huge fan of. He's basically like reporting from backstage at the Apollo. He says, last week, Rare Earth, Rare Earth were a white soul band who were actually on Motown subsidiary. Mm -hmm. uh, Rare Earth punked out of a gig at the Apollo, a rare honour for which Mick Jagger might conceivably give up eyeshadow. <laughs> the, official <explanation, laughs> the official explanation was illness, but George Clinton, who presides over the anarchic funkadelic circus, the group that ascended to top billing after Rare Earth lost its nerve, had another explanation. They couldn't take the pressure... Clinton said, matter-of-factly, his snake tongue lapping over another number, rolling a joint backstage. Clinton himself has long succumbed to the pressure. As he sits backstage in his witch doctor's makeup, his oblong skull cropped to the naps, a sickly-looking yellow robe covering the silver codpiece, which during performance accentuates his otherwise total nudity. Clinton's wondering why, after five years as the only black exponents of Hendrix, the Parliament Funkadelic Madhouse can barely draw 100 people to the Apollo on a Tuesday night. 
Oh, that's, that is yeah. sad. I mean, Lorraine, yeah. did you ever cross George Clinton's path no, in no. Detroit? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, right? Uh, <laughs> this is a good piece. I mean, J.J. Cale, and this is 1976 Melody Maker. He is just breaking through, effectively, as a solo artist, and he's coming to do his first English shows. He didn't do many interviews in those days, J.J. Cale. He really kept himself. Mm. So Ed Jones got to actually talk to him. You know, you see, he's great. I get to entertaining myself and forget that I'm supposed to be producing a product which is really good in a way. And he says, I'm just lazy too. If I can play one chord instead of two, I'll do it. But that's laziness though. <laughs> when I first got started getting any money for music, I couldn't believe you got paid for doing it. Music is not a commodity, which amuses me in the light of the last podcast where who was it who said that music was a commodity? Martin Fry from ABC. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nineteen eighty, jumping ahead to Record Mirror and a new a writer new to our books, Ronnie Gurr. And it's a fabulous interview with Grace Jones. She's just breaking through. I think Warm Leatherette had come out. Private Lives had just been starting to go up the charts. So this is very early in her sort of breakthrough with Island Records period. And you know, she's fabulous. He obviously really likes her. When I mentioned that I was running this, he said, Oh God, you've got no idea how frightened I was. <laughs> but so she says, it's like, you know, I thought, why am I doing this if not to please myself? I had a definite idea about the way I wanted to look. I wanted to be able to experiment. Most of my lovers at that time were artists. I had a fascination for the underground struggling artist kind of man. To do my second album, I mean my fifth album, isn't it crazy? It feels like this is my first record, which is kind of a really good point. <laughs> There's such discipline involved in being pregnant. Afterwards, I just felt like running amok. Bust and loose. <laughs> it's a very, very good interview. I Great. I love it. I mean, I, you know, we're, we're, we're all fans yeah, of, yeah. of Grace Jones, honestly. Chris Heath, 1988, smash hits, interviewing Debbie Gibson. It's all right, Lorraine. I like this kind of stuff. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the, De- the Debbie Gibson article. He likes it my... so we don't have to. Exactly. Yes. It makes, my, <laughs> makes my life worth living. And she says, I don't put a lot of makeup on for school. Some girls, the kind of girls who are into heavy metal, wear a lot, but that's kind of disgusting. So there we are. Back to the mall with you, Debbie. <laughs> 1990, NME. Stuart McConey accompanies... New Order to the Liverpool training ground to basically make the video for World in Motion, the England Foot World Cup song. The piece is mostly an interview them as about New Order rather than this. John Barnes does get a quote. He says, man, I thought it was going to be the same as the usual crap. Why bother? But this is all right. Talking about World in Motion. He's right. It was a cracking song. The only, um, the only decent football song probably ever recorded. <laughs> Mostly it's Bernard Sumner and he says things like 90% of rock music is archaic and dead. Well, it's roughly the same percentage of dance music is wonderful. I and mean, this is 1990, sort of the, the year after the second summer of love and so on and so forth. After 10 years, we still make great records, which is more than the Who or the Kinks could ever say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hubris. And the very last piece, which is a fabulous piece, which supplied to me by Michael A. Gonzalez for The Source. He interviews Lauren Hill just as she's breaking out. It's, it's great sadness because, I mean, she comes over this interview as really fabulous, very interesting, very bright young woman. And yet her 
career came unglued very, very rapidly mm. after this. You know, it's a remarkably short period of time. And she only really made one solo album, which is staggering. It's, it's a very, very great record. It's an absolutely fantastic record. Michael Gonzalez says, in an interview last year, Fuji's member Wycliffe told a reporter that his next project would be producing a solo disc for Lauren. Apparently no one bothered to bring the subject up with Lauren. Sucking her teeth, rolling her eyes, she flashes me a slice of her ghetto side. You would think that after selling 15 million records that I'd be able to produce and write my own joint, but it was a battle. I have a need to approach my art with a difference. I'm not one of those people who want to get trapped in formulas. So that's basically her sort of telling her erstwhile bandmates where to get off, which is fairly cool. My lot. Who's next? Okie doke. I just want to mention one piece just because it seemed quite timely, which is an interview that Jim Sullivan did for the Cape Cod Times in July 2014 with Ricky Medlock, who at this point is the front man of Leonard Skinner, as they are at that point. And it just caught my eye because this is almost a year before Trump launches his presidential campaign. Jim asks Ricky about Leonard Skinner's use of the Confederate flag on stage. And it's it's just quite sort of prescient and interesting to, to read six years or so later. And he says, because uh, this guy is actually part, I believe, Native American himself, Ricky Medlock, which is interesting. What we've given up on is giving up on being politically correct. I'm not sure I can understand that. That flag might mean a lot of stuff to other people, but look, it's a freaking battle flag. And now it has happened. You've got all these hate groups and all these different organizations that have adopted it as their emblem, and they're not even from the freaking South. And he also said in the interview, you know, we're so divided in this country, we should be pulling it together and helping each other instead of saying, up yours, man, you're a different color from me. But then why fly the flag at all? I don't, yeah. It makes no sense to me. Well, we haven't got time, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, yeah. I mean, obviously, since this guy gave the interview, I mean, the flag has become such a contentious symbol. Yeah. And I mean, I was amazed when NASCAR racing basically banned its use in their, their race tracks. Yes. Because if anything... Astonishing. ...represented that sort of notion of white southern males NASCAR racing. And if you see footage of it there were confederate flags throughout all around the crowd it's, yeah you know yeah. but anyway yeah bloody hell lorraine we are we are what less than three weeks away from the presidential <laughs> election two, how are you feeling two weeks, <laughs> two weeks. How, how are you feeling today in the well, here and now we're all very worried that i mean it looks great for biden but we thought it looked great for Hillary, too. But I think yeah. many, many people are finally seeing through Trump, I hope. I mean, I hope there's no surprise. I don't know. Everyone that I know would like to move out of the country if he wins again. But where can it's, we go? Nobody wants us. It, it, it's, it's actually just, terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's no accident that three of the nations which have had the worst way of dealing with the COVID crisis, uh, three nations led by self-regarding right-wing narcissists. That's Great Britain, Boris Johnson. Yeah. That's Brazil, Bolsonaro, and the USA, Donald Trump. 
Exactly. We have the worst leadership in the world at, at the, the worst time. Moment, at the worst time. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Because by the time this goes out, the well, the second, what should have been the third presidential debate, will, have, will have gone yeah. out. And who yeah. knows what Trump will have done by the time this this episode goes online. So it's probably going to already sound very out of date. But here we all are. Just, I think we the only can thing but one, hope. We can but hope. And, and, and I suppose yeah. the difference this time is that no one is assuming that Biden's going to win this thing. Or well, if there's this does, double fear, right? Like, there's the one fear that Trump would win, and then there's the other fear that if he loses, he, he won't, won't go, leave, right? That's, yeah. yeah. Well, it's terrifying. In, in the meantime, he's got to appoint three Supreme Court judges. I know. And it's, they're there for life. Yeah. And, you know, this woman's pretty young, this, 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 this yeah, current nominee. Yeah, she's only 48 or something. Yeah. No, it's, she could, it's, she, are we talking about Handmaid Barrett? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly true. Yep. Or Stepford wife Barrett. <laughs> That's what it's but 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 I mean, it's... this is all. This is awful. The Supreme. I mean, it is the, really awful. The Senate refused to allow Barack Obama's last nomination to go through on the basis it's too near the election, and then with utter irredeemable hypocrisy, are trying to steamroll this woman's nomination. Well, I mean, it's it's, it's just all so horrible. And every night across the street from me is a park. And since George Floyd's killing, there's been a Black Lives Matter demonstration because I'm a block or two blocks away from where Mayor de Blasio lives and everybody hates him and his policies and all that. I mean, the, the numbers get sparser and sparser every by the day, but I don't know, it's a hundred some odd days or whatever since yeah. that happened. So people are really, really riled up. And I mean, of course, New York is going to go for Biden and I'm voting next week for early voting. But it's frightening to think if yeah. Trump, like you said, if he loses too, who the hell knows what he's going to do? Yeah. Well, good luck. I mean, the thing is, I think we we on this side of the pond and probably all over the world feel very, very involved with this because if he does get back in, it, you know, the damage doesn't just stop at your borders. It, it impacts no. on the whole world. It, it empowers it all the has, other narcissistic yeah. demagogues. Fascists, you know. really, so, yeah. Exactly. So it, it matters so deeply to all of us. As I always say, if there are any Trump fans out there, you don't have to listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want you to listen to it. <laughs> we, don't, we, we don't need you. You don't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> who is that guy who, in one of the reviews, sort of sneered at our kind of oh, wokeness? Oh, yeah. Like, we're, apparently, we're sneeringly woke on this podcast. I still think we ought to get, I still think we ought to get t shirts made. Yeah, sneeringly we can, woke. Uh, we'll send one to you, Lorraine. Yeah. All right, please. <laughs> We've gone way over time, but Jasper, tell us about a few of the pieces that you've added this week. Yeah, I'll just mention a couple of things. First one to lighten the mood a bit. It is a hysterical and bizarre interview with none other than Jason Donovan of <laughs> Neighbours fame, uh, who also had a had a surprisingly long like pop hit career produced by Stock Aitken Waterman. So yeah. it's Caroline Sullivan in The Guardian in 2000. And it is, I mean... After all, he was completely open about his reason for rooting his way through an estimated £250,000 worth of cocaine in four years. I loved it. I'm not going to lie and blame my mother or fame or something. I really loved it. It was like, and then he just comes out with the weirdest stuff. I don't believe in anti-capitalism, he says suddenly. Democracy is built on inequality, and I'd rather be in a democracy than a fat cat communist regime. 
fat cat communist race. It's oh. just, it's so strange. This non sequitur leads to an entertaining rant that ends with, I think I'm a hippie, though. I love smoking pot. Zero tolerance? Good luck, Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> it's so bizarre. And, it, and, and finally, finally, the interview ends with, he split up with Anne, his partner, during her first pregnancy, but they are back together because Donovan felt prickings of conscience. I rise to the responsibility. I mean, it's my sperm, he offers gamely. Oh, please, oh, It's just like, it's really, he's just awful. It's just... Thank you for lowering the tone, Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It lowered at the, at the men- just the mention of the name Jason Donovan. But anyway, yeah, well, know, thanks for sharing. I'll raise the tone again with a great review of D'Angelo and the Vanguard's Black Messiah, the third album that D'Angelo put out in 2014. End 2014. This is Ian Penman writing about it for The Wire in 2015. And it's a really interesting review because Ian Penman is a huge fan of D'Angelo's who's really split about this album. I really rate the album, but he kind of thinks it's, it's caught between wanting to do something new and also being very revivalist. And he makes interesting points about how D'Angelo is kind of stuck. Your fans want more of the same stuff that made them fans in the first place, but better. So you find yourself having to do a better impersonation of yourself. For someone who, by all accounts, already had major hang-ups about his public persona, you can imagine what psychic chaos this might engender. And I think it's a very, very interesting point about the nature of, particularly when there is a big break in time between one album and the next, that it can cause a problem for an artist who, who on the one hand is expected to do something even better, but people just want more of the same. So you're, you're, you're a fan, aren't you, Jasper? Of I'm a big fan. Yeah. yeah I, big fan. I, 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 I should be. And I'm not. And the reason is he hasn't learned to write a middle eight. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, we were talking about Smokey Robertson. There's a man who could write a middle eight. D'Angelo's stuff just wanders along on the same chord change. It's, it's really monochromatic. I quite liked his last album. It sounded like he was making some... Well, that was, this was it. That was, that, that is this one, That was one, it. Yeah. That was the last one he did. But, but I, It's I, my favourite of his because it's really what introduced me to him, actually. Yeah. You know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, again, I, I just think, I think he, he symbolises the way certain... Just, Songwriting methods have gone, have sort of evaporated. People Basically, what you're saying is too lazy to write a middle eight, and therefore he's, he a, he's, a, he's struck a, in off. fact, he's, he's just like JJ Kale, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they tried yeah. to they tried to jam together, and it was just too lazy to get yeah. together. Yeah. Just one it's, inter- it's interesting though because Ian Penman kind of ends on the note of that he he could be wrong about Black Messiah. Check back with me in time. So, Ian, I'm curious to hear if you still feel the same about this album now. So, let us know. You should be able to basically just call Ian Penman right now, live in the podcast. Just get him on the spot. Put him on the spot, spot. exactly. You don't ever have to feel that my love's not sincere. I will never betray my heart. I will never betray my heart. Very lastly, I'll just quickly, just I think this might be possibly the article with the most artists associated with it on Rock's Back Pages, with over 40 artists. And it is Simon Reynolds' Guide to Parody in Popular Music. So on a sort of funny note, and he goes, it's a real A to Z of parody from Alberto y los Trios Paranoias to Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction. Right. So, And he, he really goes through and he talks about all these different forms of musical parody from like 1964 right up to present day. And it's, it's seven and a half thousand words of... The very first band I ever saw was, was the Baron Knights at Bertram Mill's Circus in I think about 1964. And they Exotic. were a very, very early parody band. Mm. 
That's exactly what they did. I mean, you know, they were deeply unfunny. I mean, even as an eight-year-old at the time, I knew they, <laughs> I knew they were shit, you know. I suspect Simon didn't choose the Baron Knights as no, one of his examples. He didn't. he didn't. That's just not good enough. It's <laughs> a worthwhile piece to have a look at. It's for Pitchfork and it was written Name, in you know, Give us a few so. more, uh, Jasper, of the names, if you can. I'd be fascinated. Just a random selection. I mean, obviously, the, the Bonzo Dog Band. Yes. The Dukes of Stratosphere. Yes. You know, Mothers of Invention. He really, it's, it's, okay. it's, a, it's not just sort of niche stuff. It's, it's a real mixture of very niche stuff. I mean, but recent no stuff like... But no Baronites. No Baronites. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Alvin Stardust. Yes. Your favourite Barney, Todd Rundgren, gets a mention. So, you know. Well, as a parodist, that's a bit unfair. As parody? That's <laughs> With a very... mere parodist. <laughs> sorry. Have a read. Have a read. See All what Simon Reynolds has to say about Todd it. No, it's, it's... around but the world. But can I tell you Stand a, a Mothers of Invention story from, yeah, when, I was in, please, from please when I was do. in Detroit? So they didn't quite know what to do with the teen page. So they put me in the women in those days, newspapers had women's sections. So I was in the women's section with women who were going to society teas, wearing white gloves and stuff like that. And so all of a sudden this record promoter walks in the office unannounced with this very bizarre looking group. It was the mothers of invention. They was their first record I had never heard of them. He was introducing them. And there's all these people freaking out. And Frank Zappa comes, heads to me, and sits on my lap. It's like, <laughs> it's like holy shit. What am I going to do? What? I can't. <laughs> that was my introduction to the Mothers of Invention. That's that was fantastic. probably about 65. Amazing. <laughs> you didn't take them off to some society gathering with women in white gloves. <laughs> no, I, I take no, no, it. No, no. <laughs> Freaking Excellent. out is about right. Freak Out was the name of that first yeah, album, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, very. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a lovely were, story. They were all in costume. And then I, I remained in touch with Frank over the years, and I remember visiting him when I was back in New York, and he lived in the village, and Moon Unit was just born, and he was so excited, and, you know, they were so thrilled about the baby. It, that that was a really sad loss, I think. Zappa, I mean, he really was talented. Yeah. Didn't all those children change their names back to something more rational I think as they maybe, grew older? I think you're right, yeah, later, <laughs> later on. Well, I think Dweezil is still Dweezil. Yeah. Is he? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. I rate that. I rate that. It takes real confidence to walk around with a name like Dweezil. It really does. Um, it's like I, Bo's son changed his name, didn't he? Yes, he's now just... He's something Jones, isn't he? He's a director. He's a movie director. Anyway. Anyway. I think we must we must bring this session to a close. Lorraine, it's been a joy having you on our, oh, on our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Great having you on. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and good luck on, on Friday, as we say, and with all your future productions, Broadway or otherwise, and hope to see you in London or New York sometime in the future. <laughs> it's been great. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's got to end sometime. It's, it's been such a pleasure, because I'm a real fan of your writing. I really love you Oh, know, my God, that's you, touching. No, well, you're one of that... There were a handful of women writers, Penny Valentine in this country, mm-hmm. another one, yeah. who managed to go from being teen writers to legitimate, inverted commas, rock and roll writers. Very, very yes. difficult thing for a line. Well, for I wasn't a teen when I started writing for the first time. <laughs> oh, well, that's that how we teen- you. I know, I know. <laughs> It, I, I assumed you were still a teenager when you started doing the, the teen beat column, but I guess you weren't. You were, what, 
20? You can't have been 20, 20 at 22, maybe. But then you really? can okay. we'll do have the to rewrite the coffee. and see how old I am now. But, you know, I'm still <laughs> friends with people. <laughs> I was friends with Vicky. You know, Vicky and Nona are good friends of mine. We have this group in New York, June, yes. June Barcelona. It's Vicky Wickham, yeah. Yeah. You know, so there's there's yeah, a bunch yeah. of us still around. Oh. Well, it's, lo- it's lovely having Vicky on the podcast. Come, you know, Super, about a month yeah, back. great. Really well, maybe one day we'll do a podcast with the two of you. We'll, oh, that we'll would be fun. Both on. That'll be, that'll with be fun. With Nona as the engineer. Nona <laughs> was the technical her technical help for that day. That's great. Mark, would you very graciously yeah, yeah. talk we're gonna go us out. out? This is this is Elvis talking about his his working. You know, basically sharing a stage with Bob Dylan about for about three nights in a row at the. The Brixton Academy. I actually went to that show. I, I, Did you? I, I don't remember Elvis coming on and singing, but I was was there, so I don't know what happened. But we're well, going to say this, goodbye. This, this, the explanation may be right yeah. here. <laughs> Great. Great. I'll listen attentively. Again, right. thank you so much, Lorraine, and we will be Thanks. back in a couple of weeks. You are very welcome. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. There was a plan to do a Throw It All Away last night. And, uh, but, you know, he's been coming into the show really late. I mean, he just comes before he goes on. Mm. I spoke to him after the Paris show. I didn't see him after the first night. And his manager said, oh, we'll do I Threw It All Away tomorrow night. The band had been rehearsing it. I hadn't heard him rehearsing it. I've been at the sound checks, you know. So I don't know where they'd been rehearsing it. Anyway, when it came to, yeah, when it, came to it uh, he said, uh, no, he didn't think the band were rehearsed enough to do it. Could we do I Should Be Released? Like, so we're going to do, he's going to do Times Are Changing, and we're going to do I Should Be Released. So I'm by the backstage kind of going, yeah, I said yes before I thought about it, and then I had to walk up and down while I, unfortunately, all those years of listening to Big Pink, you know, uh, finally paid off. Total recall, 20 years since I sang it in public. That was Elvis Costello in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 1995, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Lorraine Alterman. For more information about the International Myeloma Foundation's annual comedy celebration, please visit comedy.myeloma.org. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Tell me, Marvin, if you weren't a singer, what would you like to be? I think I'd like to be an an airlines pilot. What advice would you give someone who wants to become a singer? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) And Marvin, how do you like living in Detroit? I love Detroit. It's a very cordial town and, and quite peaceful and restful. Nothing at all like New York. I'd like to thank Marvin Gaye for being with us today, and I want to remind all of you that you can read interviews like this on the Teen Beat page in the Free Press every Friday, along with stories of interest to all teenagers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 